Psalm 90, hear the word of the Lord. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in Your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy. Or, even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It was a couple weeks ago when we started seeing those pictures of devastation of Harvey. How many of you saw those in Houston and thereabouts in the Gulf states? And then it was Florida's turn and the Caribbean's turn, and uh, we've been looking at these pictures of the devastation of some of the Caribbean islands and the devastation of parts of the Keys and of parts of the the west coast of Florida and all all up into uh, the, the states of the southeast of the United States. If we have followed international news, we will know that our southern neighbor, Mexico has, uh, just in the past few weeks, one day they had a hurricane and an earthquake at the same time, and then they just got hit by another hurricane, and now they're waiting for a third hurricane, which is possibly to hit. But even worse than that, if we have been following news in Asia, the flooding in Asia, in China and Bangladesh and Nepal, I think it's Nepal or maybe it's India, in that region, there's been flooding there that has left uh, 1,200 people dead and millions of people without homes. So this has been a devastating uh, season for the world. And if you are like me, uh, our close brush with uh, Irma uh, made me, and perhaps it made you, do a bit of reflection. Because they were drawing the lines, and for a while the line was going right through Miami and right through Fort Lauderdale and Broward County. And that caused us to take precautions, but I think it also probably caused us to reflect a bit on what is life and what is important in life. And we, living on the floodplain, we were we don't have uh, very secure windows and so on. We were trying to make things as secure as we could, figure out to where to evacuate. And one of the last things I did was interesting because I, I took our photo albums and I put them in plastic bins and I siliconed around the edge of the plastic bins and I taped them up and I said to Sandy, these are the only things I care about here. 
And I thought that was interesting to see my reaction about what's important in that moment. What became very important? Well, the memories of our family time together. Now, crises or potential crises have a way of focusing us, don't they? Uh, they have a way of focusing us on, on what's real, what's important, what's lasting. They have a, f- a way of focusing us on the fragility of life. And um, they, they focus us and make us reflect in ways that we don't normally, perhaps. But we don't have to wait for a crisis to happen. Because if we're in God's Word regularly, God's Word, and this is one of the, uh, the strongest arguments for reading God's Word daily, and that is that daily... It focuses us. It helps us to see once again what is real, what is important. And it also, like in this psalm, points us once again to the fragility of life and gets us to think about that so that we might make this life count. Psalm 90 begins with God, and then it turns to us. In verses 1 and 2, it talks about God. And it focuses on God's eternity, It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So how long has God existed? How long will God exist? Always and forever. He's always existed. He will always exist. Before any of the things that we experience other than God existed, He was there. He is there. He will be there. I had an experience, perhaps you did, I had a little bit of a a Jobian moment. Uh, Job, we read a little bit of his experience earlier uh, to start the service. But at the end of Job, after he loses everything and he has this ongoing conversation with these friends who were trying to help him but, but not giving him the best counsel, and then God shows up at the end and he says, Job, brace yourself. I have some questions for you. And he begins to ask him uh, some questions. Job, exactly where were you when I made the universe? And he, he, he really just puts Job in his place. And Job says, I, I, I've heard about you, but now I know who you are. And I had a little bit of that sort of experience, even though I wasn't in the storm very, very deeply. As I was watching the immensity of the storm, a thought came to me. And the thought was very simply this. God... You really are God, aren't you? Because this storm was more massive than we could even contemplate. And then I realized that that was child's play for God. That that was hiding God's power. And that He really is God. But in contrast to that, the psalmist then turns to us. And it says, you return man to dust. And verses 3 to 6 and then verse 10 focus on the, the temporality, the, the, the ephemeral nature of, of our existence here. And it uses various, various images here. It says we are like dust. It says that our lifespan is equivalent to about two to four hours before God. Now, where do I get that? Look at verse 4. It says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And uh, if we crunch the numbers here, a thousand years is like a day to God, right? So if we live, let's say, 80 years, and we do the ratio, our 80 years to God is equivalent to about two hours. Two hours. Or if you want... A watch in the night, and the watch, uh, the night watch was divided into three, and so a, a, night, a night watch was four hours. That's how long we're here in God's sight. 
a couple hours, or maybe if we stretch it up to about four hours. And then there are some images here, some metaphors at verse 5, and, and we've seen that this is not just metaphorical, that it actually happens tragically. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So we're swept away like a flood. We vanish like a dream. We fade away like grass. And how long do we last? Well, we have, through better hygiene and through better diet and through better medicine, stretched this a little bit in our day. But it's still not that inaccurate, verse 10. It's still pretty much our lifespan. It says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. And the average lifespan of humans in the, in the developed world is still in that range. So even though some reach longer than that, it's still about that range. But the reason for the shortness of our life, the psalmist goes on to say why. And the reason for the shortness of our lives is very clearly talked about here, and that is because of sin. Uh, if you look at verses 7 to 9, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. And then verse 8 tells us why God's anger, why God's wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And then if you look at verse 11 as well, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So where are we so far? God is eternal, we are temporary, and we are temporary because of our sin. Now, in order to obtain wisdom, this is all very negative up to this point, but the, but the, the reason of this, uh, the, that he lays this out is very positive. Look at verse 12. This is where we get the takeaway. This is where we get the benefit of reflecting on these unpleasant realities. God's eternity is not unpleasant, but our temporality is unpleasant. And the reason for our temporality, that we are sinners, that's unpleasant. But the reason, the positive reason, the takeaway is in verse 12. So... So in light of this, in light of God's eternity, in light of our our temporary nature, and in light of the fact that we're temporary because of our sin, in light of that, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, that's what we're after in this contemplation. That's what the psalmist wants us to take away. And not only we're in in crisis mode, but that we might take this with us so that we might get this heart of wisdom. How? By numbering our days. By, by considering that we're here just a little while and, and counting those days up and considering why they're so few and why they're so short so that we might get a heart of wisdom. And this is the, this is the turning point of this psalm. This is where it begins to, to, to turn from, from negative to positive. And, and what will, will happen if we get that heart of wisdom? Well, the rest of the psalm tells us. If we get that heart of wisdom, if we've, if we've numbered up our days, if we considered why we have such a short time here because of our sin, then what will we do that demonstrates wisdom? Well, the first thing we'll do is we'll cry out to God for pity. Verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. The next thing we will do is that we will look for our satisfaction in God. You see, we've seen that God is the only thing, if we can call, the only one, better put, the only, the only being that is eternal. So if we want eternal satisfaction, where are we going to get it? 
only in the one who is eternal. And so if we get this wisdom from contemplating our days, we will call out to God and ask Him to satisfy us with His steadfast love. We will look to Him that we may rejoice and be glad. The end of verse 14. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Do you see how this is working? You see, we need to count up our days. We need to consider who God is, who we are, how long God is, how long we are, so that we might call out to Him and find satisfaction in Him and find satisfaction in His steadfast love that will never pass away, to find gladness and joy in Him. And to continue, we will call out to God in verse 16 and ask that His work be shown to us and also to our children. And we will finally, in verse 17, call out to God that His favor, that His grace, that His His steadfast favor, that it might be upon us, and that the work of our hands might be established. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see how this, this psalm flows? You see, it begins with God, goes to us, presents the problem, says, we need to think about this problem so that we can call out to God and find all these things. How many of us want God to have pity on us? How many of us want to find true satisfaction in life? How many of us want to find gladness all of our days, joy all of our days? How many of us would like for our lives to count, the work of our hands to be established in our generation and in the generation of our children and then our children's children and their children and so on and so on? How many of us would like that? That's what we want. We have this this innate desire that, that, that our lives count. And the psalm is saying, do you want it to count? Well, start with God. Think about yourself. Get wisdom. And then appeal to God. Call out to God for those things that you lack. Call out to God for those things that you need. That the work of your hands might be established. Now, the psalmist leaves us there. And doesn't really give us any kind of practical, what do I do tomorrow? What do I do today? In order that the, the work of my hands might be established. Well, one way, and now we're going to look at some other texts and see some practical things about one way to make sure that the work of our hands will not be established for very long is to invest all of them in perishable things. I'm guessing that as the storm was coming our way, we were thinking about all the things that could perish, including ourselves, but also after securing our own safety, perhaps, we're thinking about all these things for which we've worked that could have been swept away. Uh, now, we read earlier where Jesus talked about uh, food and clothing and so on, and he said, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So these are not unnecessary things in this, li- this life. These are necessary things, and God has appointed work for us to gain these necessary things for life. However, if all of the work of our hands is devoted to perishable things, guess what? The work of our hands will not be established. The work of our hands will not last. Because perishable things have a tendency to do what? Perish. Exactly. And Jesus said, um, thieves break in and steal. Anybody had ever lost anything through theft? Yeah. We know. Thieves break in and steal. Uh, moth. Moth get in and they eat things. Anybody had things eaten by moths? Yeah. Okay. Um, rust. 
uh, rust corrodes things. Anybody had anything rust out? Had to throw it away? We did yesterday at our house. So that's what happens to perishable things. But there's another problem um, with perishable things, and that's this. We're perishable things. We perish. And all these things that we accumulated, we can't take them with us when we perish. Jesus told a parable, and he said this, there was a rich man, and he, was, uh, he had a farm. And his farm did exceedingly well. It was very productive. And he, he got lots of crops. But his barns weren't big enough for his crops. And so he said, I know what I'll do. I, I have the solution. I will build bigger barns. So he tore down his barns, built bigger barns, and he filled up his barns with all his crops, and he said, now I'm unsinkable. Now nothing can go wrong. He said, now, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. Take your rest. you got everything taken care of. And if you know the parable, it didn't work out too well. Because that very night, God came to him and said, You fool. You fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. So perishable things, we need them in this life, but they perish and we perish. So if we invest all of our lives in these things, we are guaranteeing that our lives will not count for much. Now, this parable, let me go to that parable. I, I just paraphrased it for you, but I want to read the last line of that parable. And it's in Luke chapter 12. It's on page 965. Luke chapter 12, 965, about this, uh, this, this farmer, this rich farmer. But Jesus ended it like this. He said, So is the one, it's verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this is mainly a warning, this parable, but right at the end of that parable, there's a little teaser there. Because Jesus holds out the possibility of what? Of being rich towards God. So he says, if, ever, if you invest in, in perishable things and are not rich toward God, then at the end, you have absolutely nothing. But he holds out the possibility that we can be rich toward God. But let's think about this. How are we going to be rich toward God? Let's, let's, let's use a little bit of a comparison here. I looked up this... Uh, the uh, the other day, the richest uh, people in in the world, and Bill Gates just keeps keeps that position. He just I don't know how he does it, but he just keeps that position, even though he's giving away millions and millions all the time. But but he's been there a number of years, and he's still there. And I don't know the the net worth of anybody in this uh, in in this group here. And it may be that there's some very very impressive net worths here. But does anybody think that they can have a net worth that will impress Bill Gates? No. Even if you prosper to your wildest imaginations, do you think you can ever sit down at the table with Bill Gates and impress him with what you've accomplished? Anybody? Eh, I don't think so. Okay, that's just an illustration. Do you think there's any way, now let's take it to the, the extreme here, do you think there's any way that we can accumulate riches that will impress God? No. If we can't even impress Bill Gates with his whatever, $60 billion, how are we going to work to accumulate riches that might impress God? 
And so this, this, this is tantalizing here. He says, so is everybody who is, lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And it, it, it raises the question, how in the world are we going to be rich towards God? How, how is that conceivable? How is that possible that we could somehow accumulate something that might impress God, who is the creator and owner of all things? Well, the answer to that question is, the only way we can be rich toward God is if He makes us rich. If He gives us riches. Because we can't come up with anything that might might be categorized as, as riches toward God. So how are we going to become rich toward God? The only way we can become rich toward God is if He enriches us. Is if He gives to us His riches. Now let's look at another verse to see how that happens. Second uh, Corinthians, I neglected to, r- to write down the page number, but somebody please find it for me. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. If you find the page number in the Bible, it's available to you. Second Corinthians 8, 9. 1070? 1070. It says this, and look at the exchange here. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Who starts out rich here? Jesus. What kind of riches did Jesus have? Everything, right? And it says that He became poor. Born in a poor family, uh, never was able to accumulate any personal wealth, uh, lived oftentimes off the generosity of others in an itinerant ministry, died as a criminal, was buried in a, a borrowed tomb. He, he, he became poor. He was considered before God to be the most vile of sinners as He took our sins upon Himself. He, he, he became spiritually and physically bankrupt for us so that what? so that we, through His poverty, might become rich. Now we have the answer to Psalm 90. You see, in Psalm 90, we cried out to God for His pity. We, we cried out to God for His favor. We uh, cried out to God for His joy, His satisfaction, His gladness. And now in the New Testament, we have the answer to how we can have that from God. And the answer is, because He Himself became poor for us, so that we might become rich. So we can have God's favor because Jesus received His curse. Do you remember the wrath of of Psalm 90? The wrath against sin? How can we have God's favor? Well, because that wrath against sin has been taken away in the one who became poor for us. How can we have God's favor? Because He has turned His favor away from His own Son so that He might turn His favor toward all who believe in Him. That's how we can become rich. Now, before God... Now, having received Christ's riches by faith in Him, what can we do to make our lives count? If it's not investing them all in perishable things, in what can we invest them so that they will count for generation after generation after generation? And the answer is very simple. We invest them in other people. Paul was at the end of his life, as far as we know, this is his last letter in 2 Timothy, Second Timothy, once again, I, I wasn't on the ball this week. I didn't write down the, the page number in your version there. But Second Timothy chapter 1, 
or chapter 2 rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 2 Timothy 2, Paul gives us a formula for making our lives count. Very simple formula. He says, anybody have the page there? 1097. 1097? Thank you. 1097. Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's it. At the end of his life, this is what Paul says. This is his, his great message to Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, you learn some things from me. Take those things, teach them to others, so that those people might be able to pass them on to others. That's Paul's pearl of wisdom at the end of his life. Take what you have and invest it in others. Take what you've learned and teach it to others, and that way it will go on. As uh, Wherever Paul went, he took others along to train. And we have 19 of them named in the New Testament. 19. We don't know how many there were in all, but listen to this list. He had Aquila... Aristarchus, Barnabas, Epaphras, Gaius, Justus, Luke, Mark, Onesimus, uh, Philemon, Priscilla, who was uh, the wife of Aquila, Secundus, Silas, Sopater, Tertius, Timothy, Titus, Trophimus, and Tychicus. Those are the ones we know about. And these are the ones that he trained. And how do we know that those people did what they were supposed to do in passing on to the next generation? How do we know that they did their job? Because it got to us. Somehow it got to us through these men and women. It was passed on generation after generation after generation, and the gospel has gotten even to us this many miles away and this many years later. But Paul didn't invent this strategy, did he? Jesus had three years of active ministry, and he preached to multitudes, most of whom did not follow him, most of whom turned away from him. But he invested his life in twelve particularly, and a few others around those twelve. And those twelve passed that on to others, who passed it on to others, who passed it on to others, and it has come down to us to this day, a revolution that continues to grow around the world. Now, we are not Jesus, we are not Paul, we are not the apostles, we are not the, the followers of the apostles, but we need to do the same strategizing. And to make it simple, we could think about simple things. What do we do today? What do we do tomorrow? It's not complicated. You know that phone call that you've been thinking about making it? Well, why don't you make that today? Or that that encouraging text message that you've been thinking about sending to a friend? Well, why not send it now? Or maybe that that neighbor, you've you've always thought, well, maybe maybe I should visit that person. I I see that he's by himself. And maybe I should visit that person. Well, why why not visit him today? Or that person you've really had a burden for and you really wanted to talk to him about the gospel? Well, why not take the opportunity now? Or that person that you need to forgive in your heart and you've been holding that resentment? Well, why not, why not let that go now? Or that person of whom you need to ask forgiveness? Why not go to that person today and say, you know, I, I hurt you and I did what was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Or that person you said, I'd really like to pour into this person some of the Bible knowledge that I have. Well, why not try to set that that up today? Why not uh, take that meal that you've been thinking about making for that homeless person and, and make it today and 
deliver it today, or that, that donation, you, you, your hearts have been torn by the, the devastation you've seen around the world, and you've said, you know, I really should do something about that. I really, I really should make a donation. Why not, why not write that check now? Or that missionary, you've heard about a missionary and you've heard about his or her needs and uh, trying to go to take the gospel to others. And you said, I, I really would like for that, that person to be able to take the gospel where I can't go. Well, why not start supporting that person today? You see, there are all sorts of things that we can do that, that aren't that difficult, that aren't that grand sounding. But what are we doing? We are investing our lives in the lives of others. And we have only one of these things, my friends. We have only one life to live. So let's do what we can in God's favor, in Christ, to make it count. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the... Maybe it was a wake-up call. We thank You for the the reminder that this storm gave to us of our fragility and the the perishable nature of things and the importance of people. And we thank you that this psalm has reinforced that message today. And we pray, O God, that you would build this into our lives, that we would do it now because we may not have an opportunity to do it later, and that you would enable us to invest ourselves, whatever we receive from others, that we would be able to pass that on to the next generation. O God, so that the work of our hands might be established. Establish, O God, the work of our hands. Yes, establish in Christ the work of our hands. And we pray in His name. Amen.